listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning, church. It's always great to be here and an honor to bring God's word before us. And so this morning... Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5, and today is kind of marking a shift in the Sermon on the Mount. We began with the Beatitudes, and they all begin with, blessed are. Remember, blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what we saw was, this word blessed means he is describing those that God approves of. And on the surface, we love the Beatitudes. In fact, we use them uh, often, whether we kind of realize or not, I can remember growing up and at my grandmother's house, my brother doing something and causing me to get mad, and we get into it, and my grandmother say, uh-uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And we would use this, and on the surface, we like them, but what we saw is that these are standards that we cannot keep, that we are to view these, that we know there is not enough good in us. We cannot be good enough that God would ever approve of us because he's describing who we will be, uh, those that will be in the kingdom of God, in the new kingdom. And then we saw last week while we're here on earth, we're to be this salt and light, we're to be this foreshadowing of all that will happen for us. But today is going to mark a transition, and it is a not just a lot of text. It is a difficult set of verses to walk through. This is not the ones that you're going to see refrigerator magnets of. These are not ones that your grandmother had crocheted hanging on her wall. This is not that section. But it is so relevant and always needed in our lives. And what we're going to see is that in this section, it is going to draw out a problem that we all face. In fact, a problem that we all have. And Jesus is going to go toe-to-toe with some people today. Because it's all about this idea of expectations and boundaries and rules. And those are good things. We need these things in our lives. You took away expectations and, and rules in the workplace and the, You're going to see a decrease in morale and a lack of motivation and productivity is going to go down. School is over, at least almost for some. In a classroom, you need rules and expectations and and things for students to live by. If not, it is chaos and students will not succeed. Same in the home. Everyone's going to struggle if there are not expectations and rules and, and guidelines. But then insert our sinful hearts and something happens. All of a sudden we want to know where the line is. Because I want to get as close to that line as possible. I want to bend that rule without breaking it. Or we make exceptions. We know what the boundaries rules are. And, but we make exceptions for things so we can break them. And then when we do break them, we justify our actions. But then we get really creative and we create ways kind of around it or we'll reinterpret it. 
this rule or expectation so I get to do what I want or so that I can be okay. So back to my brother and I. He always caused trouble. That's just what you need to know about my younger brother. He was always a troublemaker. Mom tells me, don't hit your brother. So she hears him screaming, and she comes in and she finds me. I've pinned him down to the ground with my legs on his shoulders, rearranging his face. And I get in trouble for that. But my, my response was, but mom, I did not hit him. Taking in, we reinterpret all of these things. Well, this is what Jesus is dealing with today. And we're going to see this in the context of Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 17. And this whole section goes all the way to the end of the chapter. What he's going to do, he's going to take six Old Testament laws. And he is going to reinterpret or interpret this in light of the life that he has come to give. So over the next two weeks, we're going to talk about some great things. Today, I get anger, lust, and divorce. Excited about that chapter. Then oaths, retaliation, and love your enemies. And so today we're going to look at the first three. And through each of these, what I believe is happening is Jesus is going to interpret each of these to point out one thing and is this. It's whatever is in our heart eventually will be expressed in our life. That whatever is in my heart, eventually that is going to be expressed, good, bad, or ugly. It is going to be expressed some way, in some fashion, whatever is in my heart. And I think that is what Jesus is getting at in these verses. So, church, let me pray. Father, this morning as we begin to walk through these verses, and even though they are difficult, they are needed, and we need to hear your message this morning. And that's what I pray for us, that, Lord, all truth would stand and anything false would fall on deaf ears. Lord, would your word accomplish its purpose this morning? And Lord, I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so here we go. Chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so immediately we are thrust into this, this problem that is happening and this accusation that's being made against Jesus. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders, thinking about Jesus, thought that he was coming to try to destroy their most prized possession. And it was the law. It was the most important thing in their lives. And here's some things we need to know about this. First of all, the law. The scribes and the Pharisees, they made obedience to God's law and their master of it, their life's passion. Now, I know that doesn't really sound all that bad, does it? But when you look at it, however, they took God's law and they did all those things that I talked about earlier, plus more. In fact, they took his law and they made it into 248 commandments. They made 365 prohibitions to that. And why would they do that? It's because they were trying to take God's law. And they wanted to know where the line is. They did this so that they could actually keep them 
and think that they were being okay because they were not hitting their brother. But they also wanted to do this so that they would feel superior and that they could control everyone else. They were the judge and they were the jury. The second thing about this is they look at Jesus. You know, he didn't come from a recognized school. He didn't follow a, a certain rabbi around. He did not have the credentials that they wanted. And that threatened them. But the third thing to know is he was doing things that were against their code of conduct. They had their law. They had all their commandments. They had all the stipulations they wanted to put on it. And here's this man healing on their Sabbath. You didn't do that. He associated with people that they said you should not. So their conclusion is he was coming to abolish, trying to abolish the law. And Jesus is going to answer them, you are wrong. Because notice what he says in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So he says, not an iota, not a dot. And I have heard that word used, but I don't think I ever understood what it meant until this past week. And so I'm going to share it with you whether maybe you know it or not. So an iota means the smallest detail or letter. So I knew it meant little. I knew it meant small. But the smallest Hebrew word is yod. It's, it's like an apostrophe. There are approximately 66,240 yods in the Old Testament. And then the smallest stroke of the Hebrew language is a seraph. It's this tiny dot that you put over similar letters to distinguish them. And there are thousands of those. So I think Jesus is saying not one of those 66 plus thousand yods and the innumerable little seraphs will pass until the law is completely accomplished. So how does he do this? Well, here's just a few. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, he fulfilled the prophetic birth. In fact, the entire Jewish sacrificial system is pointing to him. In fact, then he keeps every commandment of the law, fulfilling it with his own life. He fulfilled the prophetic crucifixion in Psalm 22. He even fulfilled the prophetic giving of the Holy Spirit in Ezekiel chapter 11. And that's just a few of them. But once Jesus makes it clear, then they see the problem. Look at what happens in verse 19. He's about to go after to make it very clear that they are going to see the problem in the issue. Because he says, therefore, whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teachers others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of God. And whoever does them and teaches them, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And this would have been music to the Pharisees and the scribes' ears because he believed, they would have believed he is describing them. They would have loved that. But look at what happens in verse 20. For I tell you, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he then had the attention of everyone. He had the attention of the Pharisees and the scribes because they thought that was them. Everybody that looked to them, whether it was in admiration or fear, is now wanting to know what happens next. Because their problem is they were interpreting and, and they were then taking these laws and applying them in ways that they felt that they were okay. And that's what they were doing. And Jesus is going to take six of these. But he's going to show them that because they were controlled the law, that's what they were doing. They could have influence over other people. They became the standard for other people to follow. But then Jesus lays down the gauntlet. Not until your righteousness exceeds that of theirs. He is showing them they are actually the ones that are trying to destroy the law. And they're doing it with their traditions. They're doing it with their ceremonies. And he's about to show them they're doing it with their hypocritical lives. So here's the first of the six areas Jesus is going to take before them. The first one is anger. Look at verse 21. You have heard it said of, old, of those of old... And Jesus is going to now correct, not Moses, but he's going to correct their understanding, their interpretation of one of the laws. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This was what they were going around teaching and saying. You have heard it said, he's going after number six. And if you were to turn to Exodus chapter 20, you know how it would read? Thou shalt not murder, period. But notice, that's not what they were teaching. They were adding something to it. Do not murder. Whoever murders will be li liable to judgment. And they're not talking about God's judgment here. They're talking about the civil authority. So the reason is, hey, don't murder. That's going to get you in trouble with the government. They made it purely a legal matter. But notice the point. They were interpreting this in a way so they could keep it. They did not feel like they were murderers. Therefore, they are okay. But notice what Jesus says. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And that is not civil judgment. But whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is taking it. First of all, we need to know that there is a righteous anger. We saw it in Ephesians chapter 4. There is a righteous anger against sin. But here Jesus is referring to anger against people. And this word means a, a causeless anger. But notice the progression. There's three phrases here. Who is angry? When this happens, someone does something and we get angry. Notice the progression. It's going to lead to whoever insults. That our anger then explodes into words. And then you will say to someone, you fool. That our words are then used to degrade 
a person. So we get angry and then it explodes into words and then those words are used to hurt and degrade other people. And Jesus' point, everyone is guilty of this. Because that's what he wants. Everyone that is on that hillside on the western side of Galilee, he wants them to see you are all guilty of this. That Jesus is saying if you are filled with anger, you're on the same road as a murderer. You just haven't traveled all the way down the road yet. But you're on the same road. I think he's showing us that killing doesn't just mean destroying someone's physical life. It includes trying to destroy the person in any shape or form. But I want to point out two things here culturally for us. Did you know people are counting on your anger? It's just happening. It is happening all around us. You know, the media, they want to get and gain our attention. And they know the number one reason is to bank on your, your anger. They know that happens. And so that is what they're doing to keep and to gain our attention is to keep us angry. And then do you know what the number one view of God in the world is? Is that he is an angry God. That's how most people view God. Whether they believe he is there, they believe he is an angry God. And I think it's easy to see and believe that when people all around us are constantly angry. And I think this is something that is only increasing in our society. We are becoming more and more filled with anger. But now back to the passage. Why does he start with murder? Murder was a law that I believe they felt they could keep. So here again, Jesus wants to show them that anyone that carries hatred or even contempt in their heart towards someone else is just as much a lawbreaker as a murderer. That we are all guilty as a murderer because we share the same sinful heart. The only thing that can come out of us is what is already in us. Do you know another person or circumstances, they can't make you angry. It's already in us. And because it's already there, it's going to overflow from that source. Because whatever is in our heart will eventually be expressed in our life. And he begins with anger. But notice the application Jesus gives us. He's such a masterful teacher. Look at verse 23. So if you are offering your gift in an altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you to be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is showing us it is not enough just to avoid all the negatives. We must make some positive steps in doing whatever we can to put ourselves right with others. And you see what these Pharisees and scribes loved? They loved their ceremonies. 
They loved their traditions. They loved to be able to go and make their offerings. It was a show for everyone else, and they could hide behind it. But notice, I think we can do the same thing. We can do a lot of Christian activities and a lot of things that Christians are could do to cover up what is really going on. Because notice verse 25. Once we are in front of the judge, it's too late. So I think the word of caution is if there is someone that you know you are not right with, to go and to make as best as we can possibly right. If the window is still open, take it before it closes. Do something while you still can. Because anger will and can destroy lives. And Jesus is showing them all. I know you think you've got murder, that you're okay there. But let me tell you, you are all as guilty of murders because you have anger in your hearts. Well, then he goes on to topic number two. Look at verse 27. You have heard it said, there's the phrase again, you shall not commit adultery. Now, once again, the Pharisees were interpreting this into something that they felt they were okay before God. But once again, Jesus is about to reinterpret this for them and for us because 28, he goes on to say, but I say to you, that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says, you are wrong if you think you are right with God simply because you have not committed adultery. He is showing it's not just an action, but it is an attitude of the heart. The same with anger and murder. They're on the same road. One has just not traveled as far yet. The same with lust and adultery. It's all the same road, but one has just traveled further. So look at Jesus' application or the solution. And Oswald Chambers says this about what we're about to read. He says, this line of discipline is the sternest one that ever struck mankind. And I agree with him. Look at what he says. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So is Jesus literally saying, if you have a problem with lust, to tear out, gouge out your eyes. And if you have a problem with your hands causing you to sin, to cut them off. I think the answer is no. Because he knows this. The cutting out or tearing out our eyes and cutting off our hands still will not solve our problem. Because whatever is in our hearts will eventually be expressed in our lives. So what is he saying? Well, I read this this week and I thought John Stott says it perfectly. So I just want to read how he puts it. If your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your eyes, the object you see, then pluck out your eyes. That is, don't look. Behave 
as if you had actually plucked out your eyes and flung them away and were now blind and so could not see the objects which previously caused you to sin. Again, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your hands, the things you do, or your feet, the places you visit, then cut them off. That is, don't do it. Don't go. Behave as if you had actually cut off your hands and your feet had flung them away and were now crippled. And so you could not do the things or visit the places which previously caused you to sin. Meaning anything that stands between you and Christ must be ruthlessly and savagely torn out and thrown away. That Jesus is saying drastic measures are always appropriate in order to protect our spiritual health. That halfway measures will never do the job. So the application, if God is speaking to you about something that needs to be put out of your life, do what he says today. Don't wait. Maybe he's telling you to change your visual habits, then do it for your soul's sake and that of your family. If God is saying there's a relationship that needs to end, do it today. He says, don't give Satan and sin the even smallest opportunity. Attack sin savagely. One author calls it the mortification of sin. But once again, they are taking these laws and they are reinterpreting a way that they felt that they were okay. But twice now, Jesus has shown them. The problem is you're just trying to follow the letter of the law and not the spirit of it. Just because they thought they had not committed adultery does not mean they were guiltless. He has shown them because whatever is in your heart will eventually be expressed in your life. So now we move to topic three. And this is a difficult subject to talk about. It's the subject of divorce. In fact, I read this week that eight out of ten people are directly or indirectly affected by divorce. So on one hand, we must and I must emphasize the value and the dignity of marriage. And I want to do that. That marriage should be held with the highest regard and seen as a God-created and God-ordained relationship. And the sad thing is, in our society, it is not held highly. But on the other hand, I know there are many that have experienced divorce. And I've seen the shame and the contempt that can come along with that. So anytime we're discussing this subject, here's what I want to do. I want to honor and esteem marriage without dishonoring or defaming those that have experienced divorce. And I want to encourage and affirm people that have gone through divorce without appearing in the least to minimize the importance of honoring one's marital commitment and vows. So look at verse 31. It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
And I need you to know there is so much context that we need to know. And I can't get into every single detail, but I'm going to try to make a quick pass over this because this is not the, the once and only time Jesus is going to deal with this with the Pharisees because it happens again in Matthew 19. But think about why does Jesus want to correct this? I believe it was over the years the Pharisees have been taking these laws and reinterpreting them in ways that they felt they were okay and that they could then control other people. But they were not honoring marriage. They were trying to justify their actions because divorce was not a part of God's original design for marriage. But he tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 24 that this was allowed for one reason, for the hardness of man's heart, that this law concerning divorce was created. But in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, there is one word that they all focused on. When you read through that passage, there is one word, and it talks about when a man gives his wife a certificate of divorce because of one reason. There's one word and it says, if there is some indecency in her. So instead of following the spirit of the law, what did they do? They wanted to follow the word of the law and they took this word and what did they do? They tried to reinterpret it. They wanted a definition that they could live with that made them feel they were okay. So about this word indecency, where there were two schools at the time that were debating this. The Shimei and the Hallel. The Hallel group took the widest manner possible. You could give your wife a certificate of divorce if she spoiled your dinner. If she walked around with her hair down. If she spoke to a man on the streets. If she spoke disrespectful to your parents or to you. Or if you found another woman more beautiful, you could give her a certificate of divorce. Well, thankfully, there was another group, the Shimei group, that they opposed the others. And they interpreted indecent to be marital impropriety just short of adultery. Because adultery was punishable by execution under the Old Testament. So they taught it was any type of sexual misconduct such as shameful exposure. And everyone was getting caught up in this debate about what this word meant so that they could live with it. But look at Jesus's reply. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Now I don't know about you, but that doesn't really seem fair to me. You divorce your wife on the grounds of sexual immorality, if she was unfaithful, that's going to make her commit adultery. But whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And I want you to know those are hard phrases to understand. I've been wrestling with these for weeks. I've had so many conversations. I've read so many things about help us with this. So I want to be very careful. Because I think what can happen, we can read these. Okay, if I can divorce, if my wife commits adultery. And we could read it that way. 
But you know what happens? We are then becoming just like the Pharisees. We're looking for something that we can interpret it. We're looking for a way that I can still live up to the law and be okay. But know this. This is not a command. Jesus is not saying if she commits adultery, you divorce. It was an allowance because of the hardened hearts of people that it was allowed. It was not a command. But to fully understand, we need to quickly look at Matthew 19 because Jesus gives us a little bit more detail. It's the same question, but he gives us his reply. Matthew chapter 19 Verses 3 through 6. Because look at where Jesus wants to focus. They're wanting to focus on this one word. What does it mean to be indecent? So that I can define it in a way that benefits me. And I can still be okay with God. But notice what Jesus says. And the Pharisees came to him testing him by asking him. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That Jesus goes all the way back to the garden. And he wants us to see three things. First of all, marriage is God's design. In fact, the only thing not good was man was alone. So what does he do? He creates woman. And God therefore creates marriage between a man and a woman. And in the beginning, divorce was inconceivable. The second thing Jesus hints on is the intimacy of of marriage. He says the two shall become one flesh. That there is no other intimacy like marriage. Even deeper than our relationship is with our children. And know this marriage is the only exclusive relationship we have. The only one. But third, he focuses on the permanence of marriage. What God has joined together, let no man separate. In God's design, there was no thought, no idea of divorce. In fact, his ideal is this intimate, enduring marriage between a man and a woman. And this is what God approves of. But here's what I want us to see with Matthew 5 and 19. The Pharisees notice what they're preoccupied with. They're preoccupied with the grounds for which someone can divorce. They wanted to know where the line was so that they could still be okay. But notice Jesus' focus. He focused on the institution of marriage. The Pharisees called Moses' provision for divorce a command, but Jesus calls it simply a concession. An allowance, not because it's right, but because of the hardness of the human hearts. But the Pharisees regarded divorce lightly. But Jesus took it so seriously that with only one exception, he called all remarriage after divorce adultery. So what do we do with this? One, I want you to know the person that has been or the people that have been married faithfully 
for 50 years are no more accepted by God than a person that has been divorced. We are all sinners in constant need of grace. That yes, God hates divorce, but he doesn't hate those that have been divorced. So whether we've been married once or twice or three times, the marriage we are in, we need to begin viewing it the way Jesus does. In fact, you know what the best thing your spouse can do in your marriage is to have a higher view of the vows and the commitment that they made to God even above you. That's the best thing Marla could do for me is to have a higher view of the vow and the commitment that she made before God. Because you know what? I know it's hard to believe, but I'm not always easy to be around. There are times I can do hurtful and shameful things. My words can hurt. Sometimes I know it's hard to imagine, but sometimes I'm unlovable. But if we value the vow in the, the commitment that we make before God, even more than them, then it always makes marriage worth fighting for. And Jesus is showing all. They're sitting on that hillside, and he's trying to show everyone. You know what? You're all angry. You're all guilty of murder. You're all guilty of adultery. You're all guilty of unfaithfulness. Because through these examples, Jesus is addressing one problem. The Pharisees were doing it, and we can do it as well. We can take God's law, interpret it, or define it in a way that we believe we can actually keep it. But Jesus is wanting to tear something down so he can rebuild something eternal. He's shown that the law was given not so they would have something they can grade themselves by to feel like they were okay. The law was given to show how exceedingly sinful we are that that would then drive us to the foot of the cross. Because this is where we see this. In anger, we can carry hatred and contentment towards someone else. When we do that, we are just as much a lawbreaker as a murderer. And we're all Guilty. Because you know, we all share the same sinful heart. But then we see Jesus. Jesus has every right to hate us. But instead, he has nothing but love and acceptance. With lust, when our sinful hearts allow our eyes to see something we know we should, or our hands to do something we shouldn't, or our feet to go someplace that we shouldn't, we are just as much a lawbreaker as an adulterer. And when Jesus has every right to leave us in our sin, instead, he offers forgiveness and mercy. When our sinful hearts try to find ways for us to devalue marriage, we're all lawbreakers as adulterers. So even when the Christian life gets difficult and we just want to throw in the towel because it isn't worth it anymore, Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. That he is always the faithful one. So this is what I want us to take this morning. That we need to know what is ever in our hearts will eventually be expressed in our life. 
And if we were sitting on that hillside about to go down, he would let us know we are all guilty of all of these and in constant need of Jesus and what he offers. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.